This is Bioflash. The focus for us has always been do great science with great people and focus on patients. The real mission is to say we're curing 20%. How do we make that 40? How do we make that 60? If you can't change clinical practice in a way that improves outcomes for patients and lowers the cost of care, you may as well not start. Part of being at a small startup biotech company is how quickly we can, we can move. If Roche can buy Genentech, if Pfizer can buy Wyeth, any motivated party can buy anybody else. Welcome to BioFlash, the podcast about the San Francisco Bay Area's life sciences ecosystem. I'm Ron Ludy, the biotech reporter at the San Francisco Business Times. In this episode of BioFlash, we talked to Lloyd Miner, the dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. Dean Miner is a well-known expert in balance and inner ear disorders. And in his role at Stanford, he's balanced the training of the next generation of biotech entrepreneurs and basic science researchers, the push for what he's called precision medicine and state-of-the-art care. In fact, he recently penned a piece talking about the three challenges that define the healthcare industry's future. We talked to him a little bit about that and more. So here's our talk with Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Miner. Actually, I, I read your piece, I guess it came out today, on the three challenges that will define healthcare's future. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, I got to number two, I didn't get to number three. So, <laughs> and I'll link fine. to it, I'll link to it, but. Uh, sure. Well, I think um, you know there are a number of different challenges for healthcare's future, but it, but every challenge is an opportunity. So one is, I think, how do we um, embrace the notion of each of us being more engaged and involved with our healthcare? Um, and part of that is how do we get information about our health? Uh, you know, you and I get information online or in a number of sources about our bank account, about our financial resources, those are at our fingertip. It's much harder to get information about, you know, how our health is, you know. A jet engine is monitored constantly for its performance, but we don't have any constant monitoring of our health, really. And But it's within our grasp to do that, right? And that's why I'm excited about things like, you know, the Apple Heart Study that we launched with Apple in, in November for the uh, turn of the year. You know, this is a, a study that should enable us to detect a most common arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation, you know, much more readily than we've been able to detect it in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take an arrhythmia like AFib, we don't even know what the incidence is because for a lot of people it's episodic. So if you're not monitoring, you you know, you don't know when it's, when it's occurring. Um, that's one example, but there are going to be a host of others where we should be able to have, you know, much more contact with and, if you will, control over um, health information than we've had in the past. In addition, so much there's so much data now trapped in electronic health records and then various other sources that doesn't get commonly put together in ways that can be usefully interpreted. And, um, 
just as the algorithms that that help us do searches on a search engine have become so good because there are billions of searches, you know, we have the ability, if we brought health information data together, to have similar power from the data that exists about the health of millions of people, but we haven't been able to bring that information together. Now, part of that is the legitimate concern to maintain privacy and security. Right. But somehow we, you know, when you think about it, I guess it's a little bit sobering, but uh, if someone were to really hack the servers of financial services organizations and, you know, uh, destroy our bank accounts, that would be a pretty big problem, right? So I trust that the financial services industry has figured that out and spends a lot of time, effort, and talent on making sure that that data is secure and it doesn't get hacked. Likewise, we ought to be able to do the same thing in healthcare. And part of the reason I think, you know, I read that it's been estimated that 42% of Americans in recent years have had their health information in some way compromised. And I think one of the reasons for that is that it's so split up, you know, so there, this hospital system has their server, another one has their server. There aren't common sort of security standards. Um, and so it's just right for having you know, one node on the server running an outdated operating system that makes it vulnerable to being attacked. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, I think it's incumbent upon sort of our delivery system to come up with more standardized, secure platforms that then in turn permit data to be shared and also to be analyzed in a way that protects the anonymity of people. So those are some of the things, both enabling using technology for each of us to get a lot more information about our health than we have in the past. And the other is being able to aggregate health data from a variety of different sources and then use AI and machine learning to really understand the drivers of various different conditions and the best way to prevent them or cure them when they occur. How do you think that's going to happen? I mean, I, I use MapMyRun. I you know, had used the uh, weight management uh, weight management app. Um, but those are all things that I have found hard to get together, to yeah. speak to each other and, and right. come up with a solution for just me. How are we going to do that and get some of that, that aggregation that, that you were talking about? And, and be able to use machine learning and algorithms to get some broad understandings of human health. Exactly. I think there'll be a big push in the next three to five years to standardize some platforms. Um, and I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict exactly how that's going to come together. But I think you're right. As, as long as it remains that you use this app and this device for this particular information, you use another app and another device for that. If there's that degree of complexity, nobody's gonna do it, except for you know, the small percentage of people that are either the worried well or that, that have to do it to maintain you know, their health. So, um, but I, just as, when I think back, it was only a decade ago that the iPhone was introduced. It's hard to believe. Uh, but now, you know, the iPhone and related devices are just an integral part of how we live. And, um, 
and how we interact with the environment, how we interact with each other. And I don't see why we can't have a similar outcome with regard to health information, health technology, that is, have some standard platforms um, that then make all of the apps and, and the information available in a way that we can integrate into our lifestyle without it controlling us, we control it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does the Bay Area become kind of an incubator for that? I mean, given the, the uh, junction of tech and biotech uh, in, in this region. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, a lot has been written and said about how the um, epicenter for, for biotech uh, may have in the last decade shifted from the Bay Area to Boston. And, and certainly there's been enormous growth in Boston with the Novartis research apparatus there with so many startups with the Broad Institute. There's still a lot of great work going on here. But what's for sure the case is that the epicenter of tech is here. Um, and best I can tell is going to remain here. So as long as that's the case, as long as there is this growing interest on the part of um, both the larger tech companies and multiple startups on health, then I think we in the Bay Area have a unique opportunity uh, to be the leaders and to really set the agenda and make sure that it moves forward at a brisk pace. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kind of along those lines, uh, I heard someone at a, uh, at a conference yesterday say basically what a terrible job healthcare has done in explaining value. Um, yeah. That people will go out and they will spend eight hundred dollars or a thousand dollars on the latest iPhone, but say a five dollar copay for their prescription, and they're up in arms about the, the drug industry. Um, how, how do you kind of marry um, that understanding of the value that drug development brings? Um, and maybe doesn't bring, and, and the value related to technology. Right. It is curious that I think each of us accepts that we're responsible for managing our finances, for making sure that we pay our rent or pay our mortgage, for the host of other things that are activities associated with daily living that we own and that we accept are our responsibility. There still is this notion, although it's often not stated in these terms, but in effect it's the notion that, yeah, I'll exercise or something like that, but I don't really worry or focus on my health because if I get sick, I'll go to the doctor and they'll give me a medicine and they'll fix it. No, there isn't the same degree of ownership and engagement with health that exists in other aspects of our life. And I think, I think we in the um, healthcare delivery system bear a portion of that responsibility. We, we haven't always, you know, prior to, say, 60 years ago um, or so, there was very little that medicine could offer to patients other than being a, a good listener, being a, a, someone who, who has empathy and, and relates to people. But there wasn't much in the way of medical science, right? Um, and then you know, with antibiotics and then all things related to, I mean, heart disease is treated, managed today so much better than it was I mean, even a decade ago. Right. Um, now, all of a sudden, we can do a lot, but 
what healthcare has lost is some of that humanistic approach and um, some of the approach of really getting to understand a person as a person and, and then being able to be a valuable teacher and counselor, um, you know, in addition to bringing the very best science and technology to patients. So we need to bring back in that humanistic element. And like you were saying before, we need to develop the technology platforms where people are not expected to load 10 apps or have four or five devices, but something that's just as seamless as when you and I want to check our email, send a text message, or or get the San Francisco Business Times online, you know, right. which is pretty easy to do. Uh, there's nothing related to health today that is quite that facile. Right. So Stanford and UCSF you know, have been great um, engines for life science entrepreneurship. And do you ever worry, I guess, that um, we're doing such a great job turning out these bio-entrepreneurs that maybe we aren't sending enough people to, to do the basic science, but we're sending yeah. people out to, to uh, capitalize on it? Well, I think support for fundamental discovery-based research is something that I've focused on and conti will continue to focus on. It is the bedrock of everything we do. I, you know, the, the two are not incompatible. So a number of our you know, most distinguished scientists at Stanford have founded companies you know, deriv derived from uh, the basic science that they've done. And um, what we have to make sure is that it's, it's not a trade-off, that we continue to provide an increasingly providing support for that most innovative, discovery-focused research, that's increasingly harder to do as, as NIH funding becomes tight. And that's why it's so important that we provide the philanthropic and other support um, that enables science, scientists to do their very best innovative science without having to spend all their time you know, writing grant proposals or without slanting their science in a way that they think is gonna make it more appealing uh, to an NIH study section. Mm -hmm. So I guess back to your question, I think in the ideal ecosystem, and I think both at UCSF and Stanford we do have uh, really an excellent ecosystem. In the ideal ecosystem, the two will feed on one another. So you know, the fundamental discoveries will yield the intellectual property that in turn will yield advances that translate to the benefit of patients. Um, and by studying the human condition and diseases and their prevention will also fuel the fundamental science uh, as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does it kind of go back and forth? I mean, an emphasis on one for X number of years, an emphasis on the other. I mean, just market forces more than anything. Well, I think it can go, I mean, in my own career, um, you know, I'm a physician scientist. I. Uh, study inner ear balance disorders. Uh, I had, uh, I'm not doing active research anymore because uh, my responsibilities with being dean, but uh, when I was, uh, I was doing fundamental research. I was well-funded through the National Institutes of Health for my fundamental research. <clears throat> I was also a clinician seeing patients, and probably the thing I'm known the most for is discovering a clinical syndrome, an inner ear disorder. Uh, it really came about because of the basic science I was doing. So it's not like this syndrome began in 1995 when I 
saw patients when I diagnosed it, but it existed for years, but nobody had made the connection to the particular structure in the inner ear that I was able to make because of uh, you know, the fundamental research that I was doing. So, and, and my story is by no means unique. There are plenty of others out there. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, being able to um, have contacts in the clinic and you know, see patients and, and really learn from patients and then you know, do science related to that, that's what keeps us energized. That's, uh, uh, so you've got one foot in, in both camps. Um, and yes, you may, at a particular time in your career, like you were saying, you may be mainly focused on doing the discovery-based research, and then at a different time in your career, mainly focused on translating that to the benefit of patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are maybe three trends that you think are really going to drive the next five to ten years? Um, we talked a little bit earlier before recording about blockchain. Yeah. Um, is that something that you see over the long term uh, is really going to be a driver in healthcare? Right. Well, for the three trends, maybe if we spend just a couple of minutes on that first, um, I think that the trends are, they really sort of mirror our goal in precision health, which is to predict, prevent, and cure precisely, but in that order. So I think the trends are going to be the science of prediction is going to become much more advanced. You know, 23andMe was granted permission from the FDA last year to deliver information to people who have their testing about certain conditions that now the FDA is satisfied. We have enough of a body of data to make an informed prediction uh, uh, to patients about. We're going to see that increase, both in genetics but in, in other ways also, where we have a much better way to predict going all the way back to infancy or even uh, prenatal to predict the propensity for disease and then be able to design prevention that is tailored to each of us as individuals. So uh, prediction is one of those three themes. Prevention, and that's where I think digital health, an area where digital health can really come into play. Um, you know, here at this conference, we're, we're going to hear a lot from people that have, have companies that combine digital technologies with behavior change approaches. Um, you know, this afternoon on the panel that I'm moderating at the J.P. Morgan, Glenn Toman, who's the CEO of Livongo, will probably talk about the, the model for Livongo, what they're trying to do with, you know, having uh, monitoring of glucose, but also having coaches involved that really help people to look at changing diet, changing behavior to man better manage their glucoses. So prevention will be another key cornerstone. And then on the cures part, where I think, um, yes, there will be, continue to be many advances in, uh, in, in biotech and in uh, the development of new therapies, cell and gene therapy, for example. Also on the cures part, once we are able, and I believe we will be able to aggregate data and derive information from that data, we're going to be able to design and implement much more effective treatment protocols than we have today because they'll be based upon, you know, true analysis of data as it pertains to an individual patient. So 
we're going to move into a realm of, of very much personalized treatments, not sort of one antibiotic for one infection. It's going to be a specific antibiotic at a specific dose over a specified period of time in a patient with these conditions, you know. So that degree of precision brought about by AI machine learning enabled by aggregation data is going to be another theme. So I would say those are the three themes I would identify. Now for the blockchain, um, what what's a, you know, and I'm not a blockchain expert, I want to make that clear. Um, so I know what I've read and, and in talking with people who are experts. So it's, it's a ledger that is purported to be very, very, very secure. Once it's written to and time-stamped, it's not changed. Um, and its access can be governed by the user. So it's a way, potentially, that each of us can take charge of our medical records. So this is a distributed network. It's not dependent upon one hospital or one system server. We could put, each of us could put our data on the blockchain, and then if we wind up in the ED with a problem, you know, we can give access, and then our data from any place that we put, put it is available instantly. Uh, and with our permission, it can constantly be updated. So changes in our medications, if we're seeing four or five different healthcare providers, you know, instantly when that change is made, it's written to the chain and everyone else who has you know, been given permission to have access will know about the change. Mm -hmm. So that's all very appealing. Um, you know, when, when, we, when I spoke with Antoinette last week, um, I think how the permissions are set up, I very much like the notion that each person should own their healthcare data. I think that that's just as you and I would never accept if we had to consult some sort of a financial advisor before we withdrew money from our checking account, right? right. I mean, that's our responsibility. But, you know, today, um, yes, there are portals that allow us to access our healthcare records. But they're not nearly as user-friendly as going through an ATM machine and looking at our balance and making a transaction. Now, I don't mean to say that health is as seemingly simplistic as that, but, but the more we can empower consumers to own their data and therefore really be informed about it and push providers like me and systems like ours to provide that information in a user-friendly way, the better off we're going to be because then that gets people more engaged in their health. So blockchain would do that in the sense that you and I would be the ones setting up the permissions about who has access and who doesn't have access. The tricky part on the access part is that, let's say, I'm being treated for multiple conditions and I decide to sort of segment the data and I say, well, I don't want these doctors to know about this condition. That, that you know, if the medical records are a part of the healthcare delivery system, all those records are going to be available to everyone who is a, who is a provider in the system. But um, that becomes trickier if you if you allow the consumers to say, "Well, I'm going to segregate and separate the data. Some of it I'll allow these providers to access, but others I won't." Right. I I trust that that can be worked out as the technology evolves and as people learn more about it and as, 
is the rules are set up for the permissions. Mm -hmm. But everything I read about it, uh, it's exciting to think about the opportunities that could be advanced. Um, but it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. I don't think so. I think it's <laughs> going to take some time. The other thing that I found intriguing is that just as um, for those in thinking about the most common use of blockchain being you know, digital currencies, Bitcoin and others, for those people who do the mining, they get rewarded for doing it. You can imagine if you had a blockchain with uh, healthcare data that was privacy protected, then if you rewarded you know, scientists for mining the data and looking for the trends and the patterns in the data, I mean, that could accelerate the pace of research enormously. Right, right. So you, you've been a big proponent, I, I think the term is that you've used is precision health. Right, right. Um, it, it seems like with Obamacare, I heard companies, drug development companies specifically, um, but also device and diagnostics uh, developers, talking more about you know, how do we deliver something so that a hospital doesn't see a, a patient twice. I mean, we're taking care of the problem when the patient comes in. And, and I, I've kind of attribute, attributed that to Obamacare and, and some of the dictates that came yes. from it. With the changes to yeah. Obamacare, is there any concern that we get away from what we seem to be heading toward that, that value-based healthcare? Exactly. I think... Uh... It's hard to see what's going to happen in the short term. In the long term, I believe there's widespread agreement, regardless of political party or, or, or political ethos, widespread agreement that moving towards value-based payment, which you just described, moving away from a simple fee-for-service pay system, which in a fee-for-service system, the economic rewards are for delivering services, for doing more. There isn't anything per se in a simple fee-for-service system that links to outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, think about every other sector of the economy. It's all in some way linked to outcomes. I mean, you and I go to stores, we buy products that we know to be reliable, to be, um, you know, to deliver the services we want. Um, similarly, healthcare has got to migrate towards pay for value. So we, we see that beginning with bundled payments or things like joint replacement where there's a bundled payment to the hospital or whomever that includes the surgeon's fee, the anesthesiologist, the hospitalization. And then it's the responsibility of the system to manage the care in a way that that payment covers the cost and hopefully provides the system some margin. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think in the end, uh, we will come back to that. It's harder to predict in a short term how much of a migration away from that transition, which you talked about before, which was, I think, one of the effects of Obamacare, whatever else you could say about the, you know, about the system, mm -hmm. is that it was designed to incentivize paying for value and encouraging and provide incentives for value. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of BioFlash. Be sure to follow our daily coverage of the Bay Area's biotech industry at sanfranciscobusinesstimes.com. And you can follow me 
and give me your feedback and tips on Twitter at rludy, that's R-L-E-U-T-Y underscore biotech. BioFlash is produced by Kevin Trong. <laughs>